the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Rob Black and your money. And your money. Now. 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 Here's, here's Rob Black. Welcome in. Rob Black and your money, all things financial. Talking about Money 101 Things that you got to know to succeed to get to retirement sooner rather than later. I'm kind of putting together chapters ever so slowly. I'm not quite sure if there's going to be 10, 20, or 30 chapters. Uh, part of this is to turn into podcast. Part of this is to turn into maybe a series down the road so that you can you know, brush up on what you specifically need. But there's 10 things that you got to know about investing. And I'm going to call this chapter four. You know, money 101, all things financial, investing. And over the long term, stocks have historically outperformed all other investments. From 1926 to 2005, the S&P 500 returned an average of 10.4%. The next best asset class is bonds. Long-term treasury notes returned on average 5.08% over that same period of time. And real estate's number three behind bonds. Now, California real estate, in particular San Francisco, is the only market in the United States that has actually kept up with the S&P 500 in the last 20 years. And some would say that it's out of reach for most people at this point in time, whereas stocks aren't. Because you can buy $100 of the S&P 500, you can buy $200, you can do whatever you want to. So over the longer term, stocks are great. But over the short term, stocks are hazardous to your financial health. For instance, on October 19, 1987, stocks experienced the worst one-day drop in the stock market history, down 22%. On one day, down 22%. And more recently, the shocks have been prolonged and painful. From March of 2000 to 2002, a lot of your money went away, especially if you were in the wrong areas like the NASDAQ. Now, if you were in the NASDAQ from 92 to 2000, then you were okay. Again, if you were in it for the long term, you were great. If you were in it for the short term, you were awful. Risky investments generally pay more than safe ones. That's another thing that you've got to learn. Except for when they fail. Investors demand a higher rate of return for taking greater risks. And that's one reason that stocks, um, which are perceived as riskier than bonds, they tend to return more. It also explains why long-term bonds pay more than short-term bonds. The longer investors have to wait for that final payoff, typically the greater chance that something will intervene to erode the investment's value. So... Longer term creates better returns, shorter creates uh, safer returns. You get the idea. Now, another thing you got to learn is that the biggest single detriment, a determiner of stock prices is earnings. On the short term, it's news. Stocks price fluctuate on news, whether it's what's happening in the market, what's happening on international markets, what's happening in the dollar, what's happening with George Bush. In the short term, it's all news driven. But over the long term, Earnings matter. You have to grasp that. So in the short term, if your stock's bouncing all around, don't get mad at it. But in the long term, if it's not working out, get mad at it. Understand that you chose something that didn't have the earnings behind it. Now, a bad year for bonds looks like a day at the beach for stocks. Keep that in mind. 1994, the worst year for bonds. Basically, Treasury securities fell about 1.8%. The following year, they bounced back 14.4%. By comparison, when the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 44% in 73-74, it didn't return to its old highs for more than three years, nor did it push significantly above its old highs for more than 10 years. So again, shorter-term bonds or bonds tend not to fall as much, but they also tend not to return as much. Stocks tend to fall more, but they tend to return more. Another thing you got to know about investing is that rising interest rates are bad for bonds. When interest rates go up, bond prices fall. Why? Because bond buyers won't pay as much for an existing bond with a fixed interest rate, let's say 5%, because they know that the fixed interest on a new bond will pay more because rates in general have gone up. Now, conversely, when interest rates fall, bond prices go up in lockstep fashion. 
and the effect is strongest on bonds with the longest term or time to maturity. That is, long-term bonds get hit harder than short-term bonds when rates climb, and they gain the most when rates fall. Next thing that you got to know about investing is that inflation may be the biggest threat to long-term investments. Uh, it's something that I, it bears repeating is that Freddy Krueger is not the boogeyman inflation is. While a stock market crash can knock the stuffing out of your investments, you know, the market has always bounced back and eventually it's gone on to new highs. However, inflation, historically, it strips 3.2% a year off the value of your money and rarely does it give it back. That's why it's important to put your retirement investments where they're going to earn the highest long-term returns. Another thing that you got to learn about money and investing is that treasury bonds are as close to a sure thing as an investor get. You know, people want safety. Safety is in treasury bonds. Conventional wisdom is the U.S. government is unlikely ever to default on its bonds, partly because the American economy has historically been fairly strong and partly because the government can always print more money to pay them off. And as a result, the interest rate of treasuries, it's considered a risk-free rate, and the yield of every other kind of fixed income is higher in proportion to how much riskier that investment is perceived to be. So treasuries are the safest thing out there as far as investments go, but they also have the lowest rate of return. Keep in mind that a diversified portfolio is a lot less risky than a portfolio that is concentrated on one or few investments. You know, diversifying is the idea that you spread your money amongst a number of different types of investments. It lessens your risk because even if some of your holdings go down, others may go up. On the flip side, a diversified portfolio, it's unlikely to outperform the market by a big margin for exactly the same reason. You don't really want to focus your, like, let's say you give your money to a money manager or a portfolio uh, to a, fee, a mutual fund manager. You don't really want to say, I want to beat the market. You want to get to retirement is the right answer. Whether you get there, you know, beg, steal, or borrow, it doesn't matter. A lot of people look at numbers and think that's the all-important thing. The question is, are you on track to fund your goal of a nest egg during retirement? Last thing that I really want you to really grasp about investing, as far as 10 things that you got to know, is that index mutual funds often outperform actively managed mutual funds. In an index fund, the manager sets up his portfolio to mirror a market index, such as the S&P 500 index, rather than actively picking which stocks to purchase. And average is often enough to beat the majority of competitors amongst actively managed funds. One reason that index funds beats actively managed funds is that actively managed funds, they consistently out, they would have to consistently outperform the market enough to cover the cost of the higher expenses tied towards having active management, i.e. a fund manager, his staff, and trading costs. So indexes are the way to go. Now, unless you slept through the 1990s, you probably know that the decade witnessed the aftermath of the Cold War, the sexual adventures of Bill Clinton, and the biggest bull market in U.S. history. During the decade, the Dow more than quadrupled. While stocks as represented by the S&P 500 have not always performed so extraordinarily, compounding at an annual rate of 15.3% for that time period, they've usually been the best performing asset class over time. So again, a lot of people talk about real estate as being the best investment they ever make. Real estate's not the best investment you've ever made. And in fact, if you had $100,000 in 1980, and you slowly invested it into a home or slowly invested in the stock market, your return on the stock market was up over four times as great as in your home in every major market, San Francisco, LA, Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C., now, since 1926, stocks have returned an average of 10.2%. Over the same period, government bonds about 5.8%. And cash, that's the term used to describe treasury bills or short-term investments, they average about 3.8%. In other words, if you're investing for the long term, stocks are the right place to be. But if you're looking to invest your money, you may need a year or two because the stock market is downright dangerous. You know, Again, you will get those days where the market gets just battered. You'll get months where the market gets battered. But again, it's always recovered up till now. Now, to cite a severe example, if you bought stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average at their peak in early 1966, you wouldn't have got your money back until mid-1983, but that was 17 years later. Even that was better, though, if you had bought in the pre-crash peak of 1929, because that took you until 1954 for the market to regain all of it what it lost in the Depression. As for the market was in the early 2000s, it would take more than five years using a historical average rate of return 
for the Dow to return to its glory day levels from its October 2002 low. But that's okay, because you also get the benefit of averaging in during the low period. There's two types of investors. There's people that have all their money in all at once, and there's, they're, they're not going to fund it anymore. And there's people that continue to fund their retirement and fund their nest egg. And the best time to buy is when the market is down. Now, while the stock market often seems to behave as manic depressive, you got to keep in mind it's rational most of the time. Information about the economy, prospects about specific companies, it comes in, the market reacts. Sometimes those reactions are quite extreme, but they usually sift down to a handful of causes. So why does the market seem so darn erratic is the question. It's because life in general, it's unpredictable. A war here, a hurricane there, these things occur without a lot of warning, and they have effects on the economy that no one could anticipate. And when you have TV stations like CNBC, you sit there and watch them nonstop. What's harder to explain is why the market can ignore obvious problems for a long time and then suddenly overreact. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, like the housing market from 2002 to 2005, it was clearly, clearly a bubble. And then all of a sudden, just recently in 2007, credit market woes hit the market. So it's kind of interesting to keep in, you know, to focus in on that. Now, over the period of five years or more, stock prices closely track corporate profit growth. The longer the stretch of time you have, the more important earning trends tend to be. For instance, since World War II, an estimated 90% of the stock market gains has come from profit growth. As profits add up over time, the scale tips and prices rise. Regardless of how investors have voted in any given day, month, or year based on any given crisis like a hurricane or you know, a war or inflation or deflation or what have you. So in the short run, changes in interest rates, they can be more important than earnings. Now, interest rates are really, really important because when rates go up, investors tend to pull money out of the stocks and they put it into bonds and other fixed income investments because the returns there are more attractive with less risk. That brings stock prices down. It sends bond prices higher. Now, on the other hand, when interest rates come down, once you know, investors tend to shift money back into stocks, reversing the previous trend. Keep in mind that when the 10-year treasury is between 4 and 5%, I'm always buying stocks. And when the 10-year treasury is between 55 and 6.5%, I'm always buying bonds. Bonds at their best are basically boring, which is probably a virtue of bonds. You loan money to a corporation or a government agency like the Treasury Department. The borrower agrees to pay it back at a fixed rate of interest, sometimes known as a coupon. That's that interest rate on a bond. It's called a coupon. Over a fixed period of time, that's called the term of maturity. Typically, the longer the maturity of a bond, the higher the coupon. So if you have a, a one-year, uh, three-year bond versus a five-year bond, the five-year bond is going to have a higher coupon, a higher interest rate. Now, for example, the spread between five-year treasury notes and 30-year bonds, it's often a full percentage point or two. Now, similarly, the longer the term on the bond, the longer the owner will be left earning a low rate if interest rates rise Thus, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. So you kind of see how that gets again. I have to keep pounding this concept. Now, similarly, the interest rate of bond pays, it's directly related to the riskiness of the bond. Treasury bonds, for example, about a sure thing. Uncle Sam can always print more money. But a corporate bond is going to be slightly different. You know, um, are they low-grade corporate bonds? Are they high-yield or junk bonds? Uh, Junk bonds typically are over the 6% range, for instance, Um, and it's riskier. Fannie Mae's, Ginny Mae's, and so forth, they're mortgage-backed securities. They're investment-grade corporate bonds. Um, You can kind of see how, like, Standard Poor's and Moody's has to rate bonds on different levels. So, like, a Ginny Mae may get you 3%. Now, a Ginny Mae is government-backed security. It's a mortgage-backed security, and our government will pay you if it fails, for instance. Um, It's going to be okay but you're going to get 3%. Whereas if you lend money to someone like a WorldCom when they're in a world of hurt and a world of pain, you may get 12%, but they may not be able to pay you back. Now, one additional quirk that I want to talk about with bonds is if they're issued by a state, county, or city, their interest rates and their earnings that you get on it, they're usually free from federal taxes. They're called municipal or muni bonds. If the bond that you buy, remember, bonds are like IOUs. Whether it be a corporation they owe you, whether it be the treasury the government owes you, 
or whether it be a municipal bond, therefore it could be a city, a county, or a state that owes you. But for investors in high federal tax brackets, they often return more after taxes than comparable taxable bonds. So for instance, if you have a high income, you're paying a high tax rate, you want to earn money, municipal bonds might be the right place for you because your tax rate is so high on anything that you earn. So municipal bonds wouldn't hit you in taxable income. Now, bond prices tend to fluctuate a lot less so than stock prices do, but they're not risk-free. If interest rates rise, bond prices fall. As new bonds pay higher rates, become more available on the market, the price of the older bonds falls proportionately. For instance, let's give you an example. If you paid $1,000 for a 30-year bond that yielded 7%, you'd get $70 a year. A year later, the rate for a comparable new bond falls to 5%, which basically would mean for $1,000, you'd only get $50 a year. Your old bond is now going to be worth more because investors are willing to pay more to get $70 a year of income than they would to get $50 a year of income. And since the interest rate of your bond is now 40% higher than normal, going from 7% down to 5%, its new price will be about $1,400 or 40% more than what you originally paid for it. Therefore, its yield, exactly 5%, since $70 a year is 5% on 1400 you could kind of see how that plays out. Now, conversely, if the rate jumps from 7% to 9%, the new bonds would pay 90 bucks on 1000 The value of your bond would fall to about $778 because your bond's $70 annual interest is 9% of $778. So eventually, of course, when the bond matures, it'll be worth $1,000 again. So when you buy a bond for $1,000, you get your money back if you bought one bond. If you bought a collection of bonds in a mutual fund, like a bond mutual fund, that may not be the case. It's a little bit more, how shall we say, uh, tough to explain how mutual funds and bonds work, but you get the idea that it's not the same as actually owning a bond directly outright. Now, bond buyers tend to be in two classes. They tend to be in investors or speculators um, who hope to make money thanks to a decline in interest rates that send bond prices higher. So there's there's investor speculators, or there's people who buy them and hold them to maturity to get the income, i.e. the savers. The theory behind mutual funds is real simple. Let's talk a little bit about mutual funds here. You need the advantage of being able to pull your money together so you can get a lot of other investors with you so that you can hire a professional manager to invest that money across enough investments to reduce the risk of being wiped out by any single bad bet. That's how mutual funds operate. The fund is essentially a corporation whose sole business is to collect and invest money. You join the pool by buying shares in the mutual fund. Your money is then invested by a team of professionals who research stocks, bonds, and other assets, and then they place that money as wisely as they can. The managers charge an annual fee. Generally, they charge one-half of 1%, typically up to 2.5% to manage the assets. There's some other expenses. The other expenses put a drag on your total return, so be careful with your mutual fund costs. But in exchange for paying more money, you tend to get professional direction. You tend to get instant diversification, factors that have helped propel the number of funds to more than 14,000. There's 14,000 mutual funds. That's crazy in the United States. There's several flavors of mutual funds. Funds that impose a sales charge, they'll take a cut of any new money that comes into the fund or a cut of withdrawals. They're called loaded funds. So you don't want to pay money for a loaded fund unless you absolutely have to. To give you an idea, um, if you have a 2% load, let's use American funds. American funds has a 6% load. So every $100 you invest, you only get $94 invested. They take 6 bucks from you and they invest it. Um. So you get the kind of idea. So that's what a loaded fund is. That's what a loaded fund is. Um, now, 6% is a lot if you're going to get like the S&P 500. Now, 6% is not a lot if you're going to go get a mutual fund manager who buys into international markets like Russia. I don't know what currency they use in Russia. I'm kidding, but you get the idea. I don't know the geography of Russia. I don't know the GDP of Russia. There's a lot about Russia that I don't know. I can't do research on everything, so I might hire a mutual fund to invest in diversification of 20 stocks or 30 stocks in Russia. It's going to cost them more money to buy and sell stocks in Russia because it's more expensive than the United States. Plus, the research is going to be more expensive because I don't know the language. So sometimes when you invest in foreign you know, ideas of mutual funds, you do pay a higher load 
than on like a S&P 500 mutual fund or a small cap U.S. fund. Now, funds can also be divided up into opened and closed-end funds. An open-end fund will sell shares to anyone who cares to buy. Essentially, they are willing to invest any new money that the public wishes to pump into the fund. That share price is determined by the value of underlying investments, and it's calculated anew every night after the close of the stock markets. Now, closed-end funds, on the other hand, they issue a limited number of shares that then trade on a stock exchange like stocks. Now, what's cool about this is the price of such shares, they fluctuate above or below the actual value of the underlying shares held within the portfolio based on supply and demand. What's interesting to note about that is closed-end funds, for instance, a closed-end fund might buy, let's just say for simple ideas, they'll buy five shares of Google, five shares of Yahoo, five shares of Microsoft, and then they close the fund. That's it. They don't buy any more. They issue more shares, and based on supply and demand, that value of that fund might go up or lower. So closed-end funds and open-end funds are very different beasts. Most of us who deal with Fidelity or Vanguard, you're typically dealing with like a closed-end mutual fund type of environment. Now, index funds, that's when people talk about long-term performance of stocks, like the Dow Jones. It's an index. The S&P 500 is an index. Funds based on the S&P 500 will never outperform the S&P 500, but because they're so cheap to run, you'll typically pay less than $2 a year in expenses for every $1,000 invested. That's pretty good. So index funds, they copy an index, but they don't, you don't have to hire a manager. You don't have to have a big building in New York. You don't have to have a lot of sales literature. Index funds are pretty static per se. Now, growth funds, they tend to invest in a stock of a lot of companies whose profits are growing faster than the overall market. Such stocks typically rise more quickly than the overall market if their earnings are growing faster than the overall market, and they fall a lot faster if they don't live up to investor expectations. So there's growth mutual funds, and there's also value mutual funds. Value-oriented fund managers, they buy companies that appear to be cheap relative to their earnings. In a lot of cases, these are mature companies that send some of their earnings back to shareholders in the form of dividends. That means they share their profits directly with you via cash. Funds that specifically target such income-producing investments, they're often called equity income. Sometimes they're called growth and income funds. And I think most of us would be wise to invest in growth and income and to get rid of the noise like tech funds or, you know, uber uber fast-growing funds. Most of us would be wise to get into growth and income and then add a little bit of flavor later. There's also something called sector funds. Sectors and specialty funds They concentrate their assets in a particular sector, like a technology or financial. Now, again, I think technology stocks are more trading vehicles based on where the 10-year treasury is at. At 4%, I buy tech funds. Now, at 5%, 6%, I'm more inclined to buy some value funds that are dealing with insurance companies. Uh, But you get the idea on what sector funds are all about. They might be healthcare, and healthcare might be something that you want to own in a slowing economy. Uh, tech funds might be something you want to own in a, in a fast rising economy. Now there's other types of funds as well. There's, you know, more aggressive funds like aggressive growth funds. There's capital appreciation funds. There's small cap funds. There's mid cap funds. There's emerging growth funds. Typically these, you know, tend to be more volatile than the large cap funds. They pursue, you know, different strategies. For instance, they might invest in smaller companies whose earnings aren't as reliable as a big firm but where that you have a lot more potential for gains. But again, remember, with more gains, you might get more losses. You might want to invest in pricey, high-growth stocks. You might want to invest in stocks that are hot industries. You might want to invest in a handful of companies, just a very small few. So there's different types of mutual funds for sure. There's also international mutual funds that invest outside the United States. They come in basically three flavors. International funds, they typically buy stocks in large companies from stable regions like Europe and Pacific Rim. There's global funds. They tend to invest heavily in the United States. And there's emerging market funds, which invest in riskier regions like Latin America, Eastern Europe, or Southeast Asia. So there's different types of international funds. Now, again, something that I'm a big proponent of, now that I've given you a basic idea on funds, I think the average Joe should own a growth fund, 
and a value fund of large cap, mid cap, and small cap. So that's six different funds. Now, if you can get a growth and income fund, you only need a growth and income large cap, growth and income mid cap, growth and income small cap. Now, I want you to own some international, and also I want you to own some real estate investment trust funds. That's the basic concept of what I'm trying to get at here as far as how to invest in mutual funds, in your 401k, for instance. Your 401k is something that your corporation sponsors. A 401k is a tax code, and basically what it means is any money that you save for retirement can come out of your current income tax-free, no federal, no state taxes, no Social Security taxes, nothing. So if your company hires you for $100,000, you really only make about 60000 after you pay your Social Security taxes, your state taxes, and your federal taxes. So in a 401k, you could actually lower your taxable income from, say, 100000 to 85000 if you invest 15% in your 401k. And then you're taxed on 85000 versus 100000 So you save thousands and thousands of dollars in taxes. I like that. I like that an awful lot, to be quite honest with you. I think that's the right way to invest versus the wrong way to invest. 401ks is automatic. You sign up for it, you put 10%, you put 15%, and then you just max that puppy out as often as you can. Um, And again, it'll happen every two weeks naturally in your paycheck. If you get a big bonus, maybe throw some extra into it that way. That's the right way to invest. So I think I've come up with the basics on investing, investing in stocks, investing in mutual funds, and investing in bonds. I think I've done a pretty good job of hitting all of those. Um, Keep in mind that investing, again, is all about earnings, and earnings will become more tricky depending on on interest rates. For instance, 4% interest rates versus 6% interest rates, if a company earns $1,000, what they can do with that money basically changes the value of that money. So on average, stocks are going to get you 10.4% a year in returns, which basically means you'll double your money every seven years. Factor in inflation, which basically historically runs about 3.1%, and it'll take you 10 years to double your actual buying power. Likewise, bonds, they've typically grown at 5.4% annually, Basically, you'll double your money every 12 and a half years in bonds. But after inflation, it takes you 26 years to double your buying power. If your money's in cash, you're going to have to wait 23 years for the nominal value of your account to double, assuming the cash earns the historical 3.1% annual rate and is not in you know, the 1% bank uh, rates. But even your grandchildren won't see any real value of the money over that period of time. So cash is the worst place for you to be. It's not very safe at all over time when fighting inflation. Um, It's not very safe at all. So you got to be very, very cautious on how you handle cash investments inside of your your nest egg or inside of your long-term financial planning goals. I think I hid, I think I hit it all pretty good. Remember, inflation, the boogeyman, cash is trash when it comes to long-term gains. Real estate is good. Bonds are better. Stocks are the best. You're listening to Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black. You're listening to Money 101, Basics of Investing, getting you all things financial to bring you up to speed. In this series, I'm going to hit everything from bank accounts to the basics of investing to the basics of setting priorities to how to control debt to saving for college and much, much more. I'm Rob Black. This is Rob Black and your money.
in. Rob Black and your Money All Things Financial, talking about what works on Wall Street and why on a day-by-day basis. I'm doing a series that I guess it's going to eventually become a podcast-only series. It's kind of like a Money 101, all things financial, money lessons kind of shtick. In it, I start with how to set priorities, how to make a budget, ideas on banking and savings. Believe it or not, a lot of people don't know basics of investing. This chapter, I'm going to go over the investing in stocks. Now, basics of investing, investing in stocks, it kind of falls on top of each other, just like investing mutual funds kind of falls on tops of investing in stocks, investing in bonds. But these are some things that as I add similar content, I will add a little bit more color as well. And hopefully it does mean something to you. This series will probably take 20, 30 chapters. I don't know. Um, I'm just going through it as best I can at this point in time, and I I hope that it adds up to something good for you. What I want you to know about stocks is that stocks, they are not just pieces of paper, or they're not just an electronic confirmation. When you buy a share of a stock, you own part of a company. Now, collectively, the company is owned by all the shareholders, and each share represents a claim on assets and a claim on earnings. There are so many different types of stocks. The most common way to divide the market are by company size, though. That's called market cap. There's large cap stocks. There's mid cap stocks. There's small cap stocks. There's sectors like energy, sectors like healthcare, sectors like financials. There's types of growth patterns, um, whether it be value, growth, hyper growth. There's all sorts of different types of stocks. Investors may talk about large cap versus small cap. They may talk about energy versus tech. They may talk about growth versus value. And sometimes they're talking about the same stocks. Stock prices track earnings. Now, over the short term, the behavior of the market, it's based on enthusiasm, fear, rumors, and news. Over the longer term, it's primarily driven by earnings. That's what drives the stock up, down, or sideways. Stocks are your best shot for getting a return above inflation. Since the end of World War II, the average large cap stock has returned over 10% a year. That's well ahead of inflation, well ahead of the return on bonds, well ahead of real estate, well ahead of all savings vehicles in the United States. And as a result, stocks are the best way to save money for goals like retirement. They're not the best way to save money for college next year. They're the best way to save money for college in 10, 20 years. You get the idea. Now, individual stocks are not the market. A good stock may go up or down when the market's going down, while a stinker can go down even when the market's booming. A great track record does not guarantee strong performance in the future. Stock prices are based on projections of future earnings and not on past earnings. A strong track record bodes well, but even the best companies can start to slip. A good example of that is on Microsystems. They were a great growth company, and they haven't been much since. Can't tell how expensive a stock is just by looking at the price of a company. This is one of the biggest mistakes investors make because a stock's value, it depends on earnings. A $100 stock can be cheap if the company's earnings prospects are high enough, while a $2 stock can be expensive if the earnings potential is dim. Investors compare stock prices to other factors to assess the value of a stock. A stock is not good or bad. It has to be compared to figure out if it's good or bad. To get a sense of whether a stock is over or undervalued, investors compare its price to revenue or to earnings or to cash flow or other fundamental criteria. And then comparing a company's performance to other companies inside of its industry, it's common. Firms operate in slow growth environments. They're judged differently than those that are in fast growth environments. So you got to learn how to compare. Stocks aren't like, whoa, this is the one for me. It's the one for you because it's better than something else. Now, a smart portfolio position for long-term growth includes strong stocks from different industries. It's best to hold stocks from several industries because it gives you diversification. If one area of the economy goes into the dumps, you have something to fall back on. The easiest way of explaining this is you want to own multiple sectors of our economy um, because, let's face it, let's say tech goes into the dump because the economy slows, but healthcare is going to stay fine. But let's say financial stocks, um, you know, interest rates go to 4%. Financial stocks are going to do well because that will stimulate the economy. And down the road, a stimulated economy will ultimately mean more loans and more transactions directly helping the banks and the brokers. But down the road, that would help tech stocks, for instance. There's different ways of how to analyze stocks. Now, it's smarter to buy and hold good stocks than it is to engage in rapid trading. 
The cost of trading has dropped dramatically in the last few years. It's easy to find commissions for less than 10 bucks a trade. But there's other costs. There's markup by brokers. There's higher taxes for short-term trades that stack the odds against trading. What's more is active trading requires paying close up to the minute attention to stock price fluctuations. And that's not as easy to do as you think it is. At some point, just about every company needs to raise money, whether to open up a West Coast sales office, build a factory, or to hire a group of engineers. And in each case, they have two choices. They can borrow the money or they can raise it from investors by selling them a stake in the company. That's when you own a share of stock. You are part owner of the company. It may be a small owner, but it's an owner. You own a piece of every asset. You own a piece of every penny in earnings. Now, typically, stock buyers rarely think like owners, though, and it's not as if they actually have a say in how things are done because like owning 100 shares of Microsoft doesn't mean that you're Bill Gates' boss, but that does mean that you can call him up and give him uh, a tongue lashing. No, not at all. So, But you share in his profits and you share in his company, so to speak. Now, nevertheless, it's that ownership structure that gives stock its value. If stock owners didn't have a claim on earnings, the stock certificates would be worth no more than the paper printed on them. As a company's earnings improve, investors are willing to pay more for that stock. Now, over time, stocks in general have been solid investments. That is, as the economy has grown, so too have corporate earnings and so too have stock prices. Since 1926, the average stock has returned over 10%. If you're saving for retirement, that's a pretty good deal. It's a lot better than bonds and it's a lot better than stuffing cash under your mattress. Now, over time, and again, time is a relative term depending on how old you are, as any stock investor knows, prolonged bear markets can decimate a portfolio. It can happen. A bear market is a downturn in the market of 20% or more. Bull markets eventually follow these downturns, though. The term eventually offers small sustenance in a down market, though, and that's what scares people. For instance, we had a bear market in 2000, 2001, 2002, and then we had a bull market making the bear market the best time to invest. Now, bear markets are down markets. Bull markets are up markets. That's the basic way of thinking of it. The point to consider is that investing must be considered a long-term endeavor so that you can get through the pain of a bear market so that you can have a stake in the game when the tables turns positive. Now, again, to get through a bear market, you want diversification. Let's talk about the ways to look at different stocks. You could look at different stocks by size. If you look at them by size, a company size refers to its market capitalization, which is the current share price times the total number of shares outstanding. It's how much investors think the whole company is worth. Ford, for example... It's got 1.82 billion shares outstanding, and in November 2006, each share was at $7.23. So the company's total market cap was about $13.1 billion. Now, technically, if you had an extra $13 billion lying around, you could buy each share of the company and own the whole company. Is $13 billion a lot or a little? Well, no official rules govern this distinction, but below, you know, um, you can start seeing some of the guidelines on how to assess the size of a company. Large-cap companies tend to be established and stable, but because of their size, they have lower growth potential. You know, it's a, a large-cap company, it's, 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 it's tougher to grow from $350 billion to $700 billion than it is to grow from $10 billion to $20 billion. So General Electric, one of the most highly valued companies in the world, they've got a market cap north of $350 billion. They've posted steady long-term returns, but don't expect it to double anytime soon because over the long run, small-cap stocks... They tend to rise at a faster pace. It's much easier to expand revenue and earnings quickly when you start at, say, $10 million versus $10 billion. When profitability rises, stock prices follow. Now, the trade-off, though, is that General Electric can probably pay dividends of 3 to 4%. Later in life, they can pay dividends of 5 to 6%. Later in life, maybe 7 to 8% as they continue to get bigger. There is a huge trade-off you know, with small-cap companies versus large-cap companies. With less developed management structures, small caps are more likely to run into troubles as they grow. Expanding into new areas, beefing up sales staff, you know, that can have, that's all potential pitfall. But of course, big titans get in trouble. Look at General Motors, look at Ford. A growth company is a way of defining a stock by style. A growth company is one that is expanding at above average rates. Cisco, for instance, they increased their earnings nearly 40% a year in the late 1990s. The average tends to run about 10% earnings growth. Now, if you catch a successful growth stock early on, the ride can be spectacular. But again, 
the greater the potential, the bigger the risk. Growth stocks race higher when times are good, but as soon as growth slows, they tank. For instance, if you picked up 100 shares of Cisco in 1995, your stake would have cost you a little more than $3,000. By 2001, that was worth $68,000. But when Cisco fell apart, if you were unlucky enough to have purchased shares at their peak, you would have lost 90% of your money by September 2002 when the stock was trading at 9 bucks. Now the stock's trading at 27 bucks, up 200%. So it's, again, it's all kind of relative on growth stocks. Growth stocks tend to be more trading vehicles. Value stocks tend to be more investment vehicles. Now the opposite of growth is value. There's no one definition that hits value stocks. You know, it just doesn't happen. Some people would look at Google and say, you know, they're growing at 30% and they've got a PE in the 20s to 40s. That's value, but it's not. You know, it depends on, you know, is it value to me? No. Is it value to you? Maybe. So no definition of a value stock, but in general, if it trades at a lower than average earnings multiple to the stock market, then the company, maybe they've messed up. Maybe they've done something to create a value, a value to the underlying business. So the underlying business still has to be sound and it has to be true to say this depressed stock might one day get more of a, a fair value. Now, a cyclical company, they make something that isn't constant in demand. A cyclical company makes something that is not in constant demand throughout the business cycle. It's a cycle. For example, steelmakers, they'll see their sales rise when the economy heats up. That spurs builders to put in new skyscrapers and consumers to buy new cars. But when the economy slows down, a cyclical company like a steel company will see their sales lag too. Recessions tend to hurt cyclical companies. Expansions tend to help cyclical companies. You can invest in stocks by sector, of course. The Standard & Poor 500, the S&P 500, breaks stocks into 10 different sectors and dozens of industries. Generally speaking, different sectors are affected by different things. Now, in most cases, finance, healthcare, and tech, they tend to be the fastest-growing sectors, while consumer staples and utilities, they offer stability with very little growth. The other sectors tend to be cyclical, expanding quickly in good times, contracting during recessions. When times are good, investors think the happy days are going to last forever and that they're willing to pay huge amounts for earnings. But when times are bad, they assume the world's ending and they refuse to pay much of anything when assessing how much a stock is worth. Investors talk about valuation. Valuation is the stock price relative to any number of criteria. Now we start talking about PE when we start talking valuation. Everybody use it. No one understands it. The actual P.E. calculation is easy, though. You just divide the current price per share by the earnings per share. Now, what number should you use for earnings per share? Well, that's the sum of the past four quarters, typically. Or do you use the estimates for next year? That's your current P.E. of the past four quarters. Your forward P.E. is the next four quarters. So there's no right answer. P.E. is based on the past four quarters, provides the most accurate reflection of current valuation because those earnings are in the books and they're real. But investors are typically looking ahead, so you kind of want to pay attention to those estimates as well, which also you know, widely change based on which financial institution is covering that company. Wall Street generally computes earnings per share estimates for the current fiscal year and the next fiscal year, and they use those estimates to assign a P.E., Though there is no guarantee that the company is going to meet those estimates. Now, the PE can't tell you whether to buy or sell. It's merely a gauge. Again, remember I told you investing in stocks is learning to compare. Assuming that you have some uh, total shares outstanding, you know, a $100 stock may be more expensive than a $50 stock based on earnings. Now, when valuation is concerned, price is dictated by expectations of future performance. If the earnings of the higher price company are growing considerably faster than the other, the higher price may be justified. So what's like, for instance, if Coca-Cola was trading at $100 a share and Pepsi was trading at $50 a share, it doesn't mean that Coke's twice as expensive as Pepsi. It depends on what their earnings are compared to their stock price. What's an appropriate PE is always a great question. Generally, though, the market pays up for growth or enormous profitability. Consider GE and Microsoft, two very well-run companies that vie for the title of biggest market capitalization company. GE takes in more revenue in a quarter than Microsoft does in a year, yet Microsoft boosts enormously fat profit margins and generally stronger growth prospects than GE. 
That's why the market rewards Microsoft with a higher PE than with GE, despite the relative size and the respective businesses. Now, to quickly compare PEs and growth rates, you would use what's called a PEG ratio, a PE and growth rate. PE and growth rate. That's a PEG ratio. The PE is based on estimates for the current year divided by the long-term growth rate. A company with a PE of, say, 36 and a growth rate of 20 would have a PEG ratio of 1.8. Now, in general, you want a stock with a PEG that's close to 1 or lower because it's going to be trading in line with its growth rate. But for a quality company, you're going to have to pay more. So don't get excited by rock-bottom PEs. A lot of people say, whoa, that company's got a PE of 4. You know, some companies are doomed to low valuations. One group that, you know... The market tends to penalize the cyclicals, companies whose performance rise or fall with the economy. When times are good, General Motors can be highly profitable because the automaker tends to get hit hard in economic downturns. Investors account for the next recession in GM shares by rewarding them with a lower P.E. There's also another indicator called the price-to-sales ratio. Just as investors like to know how much they're paying for earnings, it's also useful to know how much you're paying for revenue. Revenue and sales, same thing. They're interchangeable. To calculate the price-to-sales ratio, you would divide the stock price by the total sales per share for the past 12 months. You could also use revenue estimates for the fiscal year of next year, which are being published more frequently on financial websites. PEs, price-to-sales ratios, they're all over the map. Fast growers tend to get the highest valuations. So again, there's no rule of thumb that says price-to-sales ratio of four is better than a price-to-sales ratio of six. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. You know, Microsoft, when you compare their price-to-sales ratio, you might want to compare them to someone like an Oracle or an Oracle to someone like an SAP, which is in a very like industry. You wouldn't want to compare a company's price-to-sales ratio like Microsoft to a company like Sun Microsystems because Sun Microsystems sells hardware. Microsoft sells software. Software is going to have better margins than the hardware company. Another way of comparing companies would be what's called the price to book. We've talked about price to earnings. We've talked about price to sales. And let's talk a little bit about price to book. Now, keep in mind, I don't want you to buy any one company and say, aha, I'm done. I want you to learn how to compare companies. And you do compare price to sales. You do compare price to earnings. You do compare margins. I'm not even talking about that this segment, but you get the idea. Price to book is defined simply. It's the book value of a company. It equals a company's total assets minus its total liabilities and intangible assets. That's where it gets kind of messy. In other words, if you liquidated a firm, this is what the leftover assets would be worth after paying off all the creditors. Now, on the balance sheet, book value is represented as shareholders' equity. Dividing this aggregate total by the number of shares outstanding gives you a per-share book value. This is a more conservative measure of how to analyze a company because ultimately you embrace a bird in hand philosophy of valuation. Investors use it to spot cases in which the market is over or undervaluing a company's true strength. Now, for example, a retailer that owns the buildings its stores are housed in might be sitting on unrealized real estate gains. Now, there are more than 6,000 publicly traded companies. So you really got to learn that the core of your stock portfolio should consist of strong companies with above-average earnings growth when you're younger. Surprisingly, there are only about 200 stocks that fit into that description. A well-balanced stock portfolio should consist of 15 to 20 stocks across seven or different industries, seven or more industries, but you don't have to buy them all at once. I don't recommend that you do. Since you want to be able to hold your stocks for a long time, they should offer a total return higher than the 10% historical market average. You can estimate the likely return by adding the dividend yield to the projected earnings growth rate. Say a stock with 11% earnings growth and a 2% yield, that provides you a 13% annual total return. Now, as a general rule, stocks with moderately above average growth rates and reasonable valuations, they're the best buys. Statistically, high-growth stocks are usually overpriced, and they have a harder time meeting inflated investor expectations. So you're looking for moderately above-average growth rates and reasonable valuations. First thing to look at is the stock's price-to-earnings ratio compared with its projected total return. Ideally, the P.E. would be less than the double, would be less than double the projected return, a P.E. of no more than 34 stock with a 15% total return potential. 
Now, a well-balanced portfolio might include a couple of industrials with a 9% growth rates and 3% yields, selling at 17 PEs, as well as a consumer stock with a 13% growth rate and a 1% yield, maybe a 23 PE. You might have a couple of tech stocks in there with 25% growth rates and high PEs. And if you can average 14% returns over the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to hit your financial goals. And you're probably going to outperform most of the pros as well. So keep in mind, you want the blend of consumer with industrial, with growth, with tech, with financial. You want that. Now, when you're looking for a stockbroker or a brokerage firm to work for, you have basically three very distinct choices. From the most to the least expensive Full-service brokers, very expensive. Then there's discount brokers. And then the least expensive is an online broker. Now, what differentiates them is the advice that they provide and thus their cost. Full-service brokers will call with stock ideas. They'll back this advice with reports from their research department. Think Citigroup. Think Lehman. Think Goldman Sachs. They'll keep an eye on your picks, and they'll even let you know when they think their changes might be necessary. Discounters do a lot less of this. While there are typically plenty of research available on the best online brokerage sites, it's up to you to dig for it. Now, you may want to choose different kinds of brokers for different purposes. For instance, full-service brokers should get paid for their stock ideas. That seems only fair, but if you've done your research yourself, why do that? I don't see any reason to pay a hefty commission. Discounters probably fine. Now, the nice thing about the way the brokerage world is shaping up is that you may be able to have both of these things in one account at one firm. Merrill Lynch and most other full-service brokers, they've come around to the fact that they need an online component and need to charge you lower commissions when you use it. Discounters like Schwab and Fidelity, they've both started offering a fuller range of services in recent years while retaining their low-cost structure as well. So if you decide to sign on with a full-service broker, you should make sure that person has nothing to hide. You can get a report on any stockbroker. Call the National Association of Security Dealers at 800 289-9999. That's 800-289-9999. Or visit that broker's website. Although don't look for easy, um, you know, notes on these people if they've done anything wrong. With full service brokers, commissions are typically based on a percentage of your purchase price. Notable names to choose from, again, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley. Citigroup owns a company called Smith Barney. There's smaller firms like Edward Jones and Raymond James with discount brokers. Companies like Schwab, you can pay 10 bucks for a trade. They typically charge one-third of the price of a full-service broker, maybe much, much less. Notable names, Charles Schwab, TD Waterhouse, or TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, Fidelity. With online brokers, maybe it's more of an Ameritrade or an E-Trade. Uh, TD Ameritrade, maybe an E-Trade. So, again, online brokers and discount brokers, there's a fine line that blends them now at this point in time. When trying to place a buy or sell order, you get all sorts of questions when you buy stocks. Do you want to do it at the market or do you want to do it at the limit? Do you want to do it at day only or good till canceled? Now, here's some of the vocabulary there. If you place a market order with your broker, then you're saying that you're willing to buy at whatever happens to be the price on the stock. If you have a more specific price in mind, you can set a limit order. So market order, eh, go out and get me whatever it is. Market's up, market's down, I don't care. Just buy it for me. But if you do a limit order, you're much more specific on what you're willing to pay. So if the stock dips down to that level, your order gets filled automatically. Limit orders can be left open for a single day, which is called a day order, or they can be opened indefinitely, which is a good until canceled. Now, after you've bought a stock, you can instruct your broker to sell it if the price drops to a level that you specify, which is called a stop loss order. It's kind of insurance. It means that no matter what happens to a stock's price, you'll never lose more than that specified amount unless in a crazy volatile market, it opens below or it it trades below that price that you set as a stop loss order. Now, in a volatile market, setting a stop loss order at 10% or 20% below the stock price means you can cash out of that stock on just a bad day. President Bush can fall off a scooter and suddenly you've gone lower with your investment because he fell off a scooter, even though the company didn't change at all for any reason, for any idea, for any concept. You get the idea of how you need to be very, very cautious on how you invest in stocks with stop limit orders and things along those lines. So keep in mind, again, that you know there's so many different types of stocks out there. 
you should be patient with it. Learn that it, it's a process that takes time. If you want to learn a little bit more about stock picking, there's a, a good book out there called Neff on Investing, N-E-F-F, Neff on Investing. I think it's wonderful. Andy Neff was a great mutual fund manager. If you want to learn how to compare companies, there's a book called The Death of Competition. It's called The Death of Competition. The author's a guy named Moore, M-O-O-R-E, M-O-O-R-E. And I think it's a great book for learning how to compare companies. Like if you compare the history of Walmart to Kmart, you kind of see how one company did things right, one company did things wrong. Um, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a very good idea, in fact, to learn how to compare companies. There's a book out there on numbers. It's called Magic Numbers, and it tells you how to look at the metrics of stocks. Uh, one's a good book's called Magic Numbers, Magic Numbers, and it'll teach you about PEs, price-to-sales ratio, price-to-books, things along those lines. But there's also a book called The 10-Minute Investor, which, believe it or not, not too bad. It's, a, it's an okay read. It basically gives you the ideas on how to look at financial statements and how to look at metrics on companies' financials so that you could have a good idea on how to invest or not to invest. Peter Lynch is the godfather of the stock market, in my opinion, as far as investing goes. Anything by Peter Lynch is a good read, although I will caution that I don't think Peter Lynch books necessarily teach you how to invest in stocks terribly well. I think he does a good idea of you know, teaching you why you invest in stocks and in areas in the stock market that are attractive. There's a great book out there called The New Rules of Money, which talk about some of the simple strategies for financial success. It's The New Rules of Money by Rick Edelman. Rick Edelman, The New Rules of Money. Um, every now and then you'll get a flash in the pan, wildly successful book like The Gorilla Game or Crossing the Chasm. I tend not to like the bestseller type of books on Wall Street. Um, you know, the Kiyosakis who, or the um, Jim Cramers who teach you how to get, create wealth. Anyone who teaches how to create wealth with a system is going to lose you a lot of money. I've never seen a system that creates wealth other than to buy great companies and to hold them for a long period of time, to buy them when they're hot, to buy them when they're cold, to accumulate wealth. Um, I think that's the right way to get wealthy is to accumulate it. Again, if Kiyosaki or you know any of these fools out there, the Susie Ormans or the Jim Cramers, if they had a system that worked – Everyone would do it. The U.S. government would endorse it, and we'd all you know, retire with tons of wealth in our life. They just don't have the system. I wish that they did, though. So those are some of the books that I, I really highly recommend, and those are some of the ideas that I say stay away from. I would never take a class on online trading. I would never take a class on trading options. Options are for wealthy people. They're a great way of protecting wealth. They're a great way of creating income. They're a horrible way of creating wealth. And yet you'll see you know, uh, commercials for, you can buy this computer program and create online wealth instantly with stock options like the pros do. It's crap. Um, so be careful on any infomercial. And infomercial is anything that says, here's a system to get wealthy. They typically last 10, 20, 30 minutes on television. They tend to be during non-primetime spots like uh, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. or 11 p.m. till 3 a.m., Stay away from any of those schemes, ideas, concepts. Keep in mind that they can have people on the commercial that says, I, I use this system and I made a million dollars. But that system's crap um, in large part because they're allowed to say that is because they're protected by the First Amendment. They're selling you a product that they ultimately put on screen in very tiny writing. The fact that you know not all results are the same and you need to consult a broker advisor before taking action on anything mentioned. And that you know these people are not... You know, these testimonials are not actual, you know, samplings. They're the best of the best, so to speak. So you got to be very, very careful with all systems and all ideas like that. If it worked, I'd tell you all about it. I'd be all about it. It just doesn't work. So take care. Good day. Keep in mind that I'll keep doing these Money 101, uh, all things financial, lessons on investing. I plan to get 20 or 30 of them done before all is said and done. And they're going to cover everything from how to uh, set priorities for why you deal with money to setting up budgets, to banking, to savings, to stocks, to bonds, to mutual funds, to taxes, to buying cars, to health insurance, to asset allocation, to 401ks. I'm going to cover it all. I just need enough time to get there. Take care. Good day. I'll talk to you soon. I'm Rob Black.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.